Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my uh, friend and somebody who I've admired from a distance. His name is Josh Porter. His stage name is Josh Dyes. He was a front man for the band Showbread for a number of years. He is a pastor. He's a novelist. He's a singer, songwriter, a theologian. This guy just does it all. And I've always been kind of intrigued by him and been a fan of his from afar. So I'm super excited to have Josh Porter on the show. You're going to really dig this. We're going to, we talk a lot about the role of art and Christianity and what does it mean to be a prophetic voice and to do prophetic music and, and uh, art in such a way that doesn't just go along with the dominant culture, but, but protests and uh, gives a voice to, and sometimes against the, the dominant culture. So I think you will really like this episode. I had such a great time talking with Josh. If you are an avid listener of Theology Nara, or if you're just a generous person, you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in raw that's patreon.com forward slash theology in raw support the show for as little as five bucks a month and if you give five bucks a month to the show you get premium content in return access to once a month uh, premium only or pod or <laughs> patreon only podcast that i release once a month if you support the show at 10 bucks a month you get a Patreon-only blog and a podcast. Uh, 25 bucks a month gives you two Patreon-only podcasts and a blog and other goodies that I throw you away. So if you want to support the show, it's patreon.com forward slash The Elgin That's patreon.com forward slash The Elgin Okay, without further ado, here is Josh Porter. All right, we are here with uh, Josh Porter. Josh Porter, as I uh, said in the introduction, is a singer, a songwriter, a novelist, and a pastor. How long have you been pastoring, Josh? Has it been like three or four years or so, or longer than that? Yeah, hey, wow, good guess. It's I'm on year four right now, <laughs> yeah. Year four, and you. when did you graduate seminary from Western? Oh, I will next semester. Oh, so you're I'm still in? up right now, All yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Well, hey, uh, I just kind of jumped into it, but what, give us a little little bit of that background. I mean, I, as I look at your profile and as I've kind of followed you over the years, I mean, you kind of do a little bit of everything, it seems like. like you're, <laughs> I mean, you're a, a, a theologian. I know you probably, you probably reject that phrase, but you're a very deep thinker, reader. Um, you're a writer. You've written several novels. You're in a, you're in a uh, I'm going to butcher this, but like a, a heavy metal or screamo band. Is that is that? The I genre like punk rock is, as a general term. But punk rock, okay, yeah. okay, I could, okay. Um, so yeah, give us the background. Who are you, and how'd you get into so many diverse <laughs> areas of of art? Yeah, you know, it's sometimes when people read like a, a re, something like a resume to introduce me, it's like, oh man, it sounds like this guy do so does so much, and I usually just say. Well, you know, you don't know if any one of those things is any good, but if you do a lot of stuff, <laughs> it sure sounds really impressive. Uh, Something's gonna stick. Yeah, exactly. You just keep, I just keep trying a plethora of things. I think when you know, I grew up in the deep south, in like uh, near Savannah, Georgia, okay. and I came from kind of a fundamentalist Southern Baptist, uh, hyper conservative upbringing. This would be in the you know, the eighties and nineties, and um, at some point, somehow. I discovered that there was this thing called punk rock, which was 
kind of I was already someone who was deeply fascinated with the arts and and with music. My dad used to play Queen records and ACDC records for my brother and I when we were kids. And my mom was into literature. She gave me Sylvia Plath uh, books yeah. and Franz Kafka novels. So I was really into the arts, in particular, like the uh, the the stranger side of the arts, or the mm-hmm. um, I, I know this is a terribly pretentious sounding thing to say, but what was a little left of center, a little left of like yeah. the mainstream, people like to say. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so when I eventually found that there was this whole uh, genre and subculture, and even like a school of thought called punk rock, I, I deeply connected with it because it was this kind of deliberate provocative controversial but i think it when it works at its best it's it's provocative for the sake of communicative resonance you know like it's saying right. something not just to provoke for the sake of provoking but yeah. so that something gets through you know yeah yeah well so you conservative household but playing acdc records can you yeah it's a little bit, of both a bit? <laughs> I, I was actually having a conversation with another friend of mine that we love to go back and and uh, my friend uh john mark comer actually we yeah. argue about uh <laughs> what's appropriate for a disciple of jesus to read or watch or listen to and we both come from conservative backgrounds and he takes more of a conservative stance and i take what he would call like a, a liberal stance i wouldn't call it that yeah. um and we love to argue about it uh, uh, in a good-natured, friendly sort of way. And I was actually, because he was like, well, we both come from like fundamentalist backgrounds. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? Like, I was in this household in the, during the, you know, the carryover from the satanic panic stuff yeah, <laughs> where yeah. everyone was terrified of Dungeons and Dragons and I wasn't allowed <laughs> to watch The Simpsons and yeah. um, most things from popular culture. If, if it made it into the Christian culture to say like, this is bad, then we couldn't, we couldn't right. get to it. But my dad was like this, like, you know, a uh, Southern rocker guy from the seventies that yeah. he was just like, I don't care. I like back in black. and I'm just always <laughs> going to listen to back in black. So he would play it for, there were little things that got through, you know, and other things yeah. that it was wildly inconsistent. <laughs> and I think they would admit that now, but it was just like, you know, my mom told me like, we didn't know people were like, we shouldn't do this. So we we're like, okay, <laughs> you know? Dude, I'm getting kind of convicted. My son, my nine-year-old son, blares back in black. And once he does, my whole household, all my kids start dancing and jumping off tables and stuff. It's, it's a classic <laughs> record for a well, reason. Well, I mean, it, yeah, we just, I don't know. Like, I, we've always been big into appreciating and, and I guess weeding out. There are certain songs. Like, my daughter kept searching ACDC and Highway to Hell came on. I'm like, yeah, it's just, I don't. I don't know. I don't even know what Back in Black's about. Maybe it's a horrible, horrible <laughs> song. Maybe, in fact, don't even tell me you're going to spoil it. But you shook me all night long. We're like, yeah, you know, when my daughter is dancing to it, we shook me up. I'm like, yeah, let's just <laughs> not do that. How would it hell? But um, I don't know. Like, we do try to appreciate a broader cultural array of of, of music and, and even film and, and other things that, you know, things where you can search and find beauty and... Um, I think helpful narratives embedded in, you know, obviously, well, here's the thing. You're, you're always weeding out the bad from the good, but you have to do that most vigilantly with Disney princess movies that have a a counter biblical view of love. That's dangerous. I mean, I'm talking like it's so subtle and seemingly pure. That's what makes it so dangerous. But you build in this worldview that you will find your Prince Charming one day and that becomes so embedded. So that when you're single at 35, you don't know you lose your faith in God. I mean, I'm serious. Like some of these more safer forms of art that Christians have bought into are actually almost more dangerous than listening to highway to hell. I think, you know, because yeah, they're so I agree. subtle. I, you know, I, when I first started 
to go around talking about and writing about the, the relationship a disciple of Jesus has with the arts. That was one of the things that I've, I found most surprising wasn't a given. And I don't mean that in any kind of a, an arrogant way. But the thing that I argue for in this book I've been working on and then the talks that I do and stuff with art is that every disciple of Jesus should exercise like a, a Holy Spirit-led discernment right. with the arts. And that may or may not look quite different from one disciple of Jesus to the next, to the next, to the next. Um, so blanket statements aren't helpful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, the throwing the baby out with the bathwater is not helpful. Assuming that all, you know, R-rated movies are all offensive right. albums are inherently evil is not helpful. Um, because some of the greatest contributions to art, even from disciples of Jesus, people forget that a lot of the most famous recognized artists in the world were, were Christians. Right. Um, and, uh, and a lot of their art is what we would think of as, as offensive. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that um, we all recognize when something's overtly offensive. You know, yeah. all these articles will pop up on the Internet about, like, should you go see Deadpool and stuff like that? <laughs> um, but the subtle stuff, it, it only gets recognized by fundamentalists, and then the rest of us assume that it's fine, and it has a more damaging effect. And that's where I think that the key is to understanding how that nuance works out. I use, It works yeah. less now because both of them are in different places, but I, I used to use this whole metaphor about, or analogy rather about how it's like the Taylor Swift versus Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson in the nineties yeah. was like this pop culture boogeyman and everyone was like evil, evil, evil. Yeah. And, uh, and Taylor Swift in the early two thousands was kind of like this country princess, the yeah. bastion of like moral pop music and everything less so now, but at that point, yeah. And, uh, but to, just like you were saying, to listen to her lyrics and everything, there yeah. were some deeply like counter biblical themes. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I don't say that to beat up on her. I just mean, it was like out of, out of sync with a Jesus worldview. Yeah. Um, and in a way that I think is like, was hyper damaging to young women who yeah. were looking to her with a world for a worldview of love and relationships and romance and intimacy. Whereas those same people would, I think many of them would never in a million years be affected by, you know, Marilyn Manson quoting right. Anton LaVey and, you know, <laughs> Nietzsche and stuff like that. It's like, they're, they're just going to be like, oh, evil, evil, evil. And yet everyone assumes that one is evil and one isn't. And right. that's where the, the need for nuance comes into play. I can't really use, I don't use that one as much anymore because everyone's like, oh yeah, Marilyn Manson, he was a thing. And no one yeah. thinks of Taylor Swift as like a bastion for morality anymore. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, you get the, but, you get the yeah. point. She absolutely was, I mean, for a while. And there's there's a great book by a Cutter Calloway calling Breakage, or Breaking the Marriage Idol. I, I have it here somewhere. Anyway, he compares, actually he, he has a whole chapter on Taylor Swift and Disney movies and everything, looking at pop culture and how these themes of love and romance and marriage, which are really counter New Testament. I mean, um, the, you know, you're, it's kind of the, the pinnacle of life is to get married and ha live happily ever after. And, and, and he, he talks about these themes, and, but then he goes to the church and says the narrative that the church is kind of a promoting is largely the same. The yeah. only cap, the only footnote we have is don't have sexually married, but it's, it's in terms of like the role of marriage in the inevitable outcome of any faithful believers, you know, life, as long as you do the right thing, you'll find the right partner and everything. And, and it's just, it's so damaging to so many people, um, that, that 
you know, when that doesn't happen, they're like, God, where are you at? You know, you, you promised me this. And when he didn't actually promise you anything along those lines, but yeah. And that's um, the stuff that skates in art. That's the stuff that slips in and is subtle. And, mm-hmm. um, and when it's subtle and bypasses filters and bypasses discernment, um, then that's the most damaging thing. I think I would argue personally, I, th- I, at least for me, you know, hearing like a torrent of profanity or, or seeing some kind of violent set piece, um, never has compelled me to go out right. and start swearing in someone's face or, you know, like I'm a pacifist, so I'm not like yeah. trying to swing a sword around cause I've seen <laughs> a scene from Deadpool or something like that. <laughs> but there are subtle worldview things exactly. that get through the art that I like, you know, an easy example is, um, the the tv series black mirror which is this twilight zone anthology type thing that Hmm. i think is like deeply prophetic in its take on the damaging effects of technology um and it's it's hyper dark just really and at times uh obscene violent and all those things i think i saw the first episode of that yeah yeah it's 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 a it's a show for designed for impact. That's for sure. It's got moral. It challenges your more your morality, like moral tensions. Oh yeah. All, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a it's a moralist show for sure. Yeah, and uh, and I'm enjoying it because I I'm not thinking of the things that are traditionally obscene as having effect on me. But then I realized that like, you know, in the in my shadow side, as the spiritual formation writers like to say, that something about its hyper bleak worldview, yeah, uh, scratches this like awful nihilistic itch that I have in my soul. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to I need to take a break from Black Mirror, not because <laughs> you know it's obscene, but because something about the way that it's constantly saying humanity sucks, the yeah. world sucks, m- speaks to me and makes me go, that's true, you know, like, and huh. it's not, it's a lie. Um, and so I think that that's the Holy Spirit discernment yeah. piece that I'm I'm trying to. So it's very Ecclesiastes-ish, uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah it's super. So super what do you, like what do you that. mean that you have nihilistic kind of tendencies? Is that it, 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 when you lose sight of what's good and holy and righteous? I mean, is that where you go to, towards more of a? Oh nihilism? yeah, yeah. To a to a horrible fault, and huh. you know this is where the. Uh, the Enneagram literature has been helpful yeah. for me. I was ho- uh, hostile to, I, I don't <laughs> typically like personality tests and, you know, like, I guess that's part of my personality. It's like, I don't <laughs> like having things in boxes and stuff like that. Does that make you a um, seven? What are you? <laughs> I, I'm actually a four. So it's like, oh, okay. uh, yeah. the, uh, you know, the individualist. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, it was helpful for me to see like, oh, well, you know, it's not necessarily about categorizing people and more about understanding. I, I didn't realize that, it, at least in the Enneagram, it was all about like coming against your brokenness mm-hmm. about like the ways in which you are uh, bent out of shape so that you can do spiritual formation and less about like, I, I think of Myers-Briggs as more like a horoscope, you know, like, hooray, I'm this way, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah. what I've learned is that like people that are wired like me or at least myself, um, go to like despair faster than someone else does. Um, or, you know, if I'm stressed or overwhelmed or if I'm frustrated, I start to go into these like thought patterns of like, man, I suck or everyone else sucks. Right. Um, and when I get bummed out on like the world or read the news cycle or something, I'm like, Oh man, we just really all suck. Yeah. (laughs) And so watching something like black mirror where it's, (laughs) it is super bleak, super nihilistic part of me is going, yeah, yeah. And Ah, I'm realizing, Oh, whoa, that's, that's not where I want to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's replacing those thought patterns for me is, has been part of a tricky part of my spiritual formation. Who who are some of your most influential kind of bands? Like what, what kind I mean, as a punk rock band artist, uh, who are some of the people that are like, Oh man, these were some, 
punk rockers that really, really nailed it yeah. that you look up to. And then also some, some maybe thinkers, uh, writers, theologians, and, and so on. Oh, yeah. What a fun question. <laughs> Me talking about things I like. <laughs> uh, well, when I was a kid, the first thing that was really, I think, uh, op- opened my mind musically was Aerosmith. My dad oh, yeah. uh, got me a copy of their album, Get a Grip, mm-hmm. on cassette tape. And I was just like, whoa, it was like uh, something that felt like it was mine. And I played it over and over and over. It was one of those records for me. Um, and then, you know, like everyone that likes music has listened to such a plethora. So I try to think of like the things that kind of acted as like foundational touchdown oh. moments for mm-hmm. me. The next one came uh, when a friend of mine gave me an album I wasn't supposed to have um, in, in my house. My parents were super hostile to it was uh, Nine Inch Nails, The Downward Spiral, ah. um, which, again, is like this hyper bleak, hyper nihilistic worldview um, anti-religion, anti-authority, all that okay. kind of stuff. Yeah. So part of it was speaking to my like adolescent angst. Yeah. Um, but another part of it was for me, it was just like, whoa, I had no idea that music could be so conceptual, that it could be so elaborate, that it could mm-hmm. be, that it could shift seamlessly between genres this way. I'd never heard yeah. anything like it. Um, and then getting into Nine Inch Nails, which is still to this day, my favorite band. Okay. Um, uh, led me to all these other sources that I wouldn't have gone otherwise because I'd read about Trent Reznor and the things that he likes. So I got into David Bowie and I got into Pink Floyd and huh. these more conceptual high art yeah. type, you know, performance art band. Um, and then when I got into punk rock, it was like all the basic, you know, the educational stuff that you're doing to make up for lost time. Cause most of the, you know, the great, um, what we think of as the great influential punk rock acts were long gone by the time I got into it. So it was like, oh, someone gave me a Ramones record. Someone gave me a yeah. Misfits record. Someone gave me a Sex Pistols record. Okay. And I was into all that, most, mostly aesthetically and as, mm-hmm. in terms of like general voice. I liked the idea that there was this kind of snotty, like, we don't care, middle finger to the establishment yeah. thing. Um, and so the next big thing that changed for me was there's this uh, Swedish band called Refused, uh, that were their whole uh, philosophical approach was like, well, punk rock, when punk rock becomes the herd mentality, when it becomes generic, who will subvert the oh, thing that was yeah, supposed yeah. to be subversive in the first place? Um, so they had this album in uh, 98, I believe, called The Shape of Punk to Come. And uh, and that was Matt, that was the thing that kind of set me on a path with showbread and writing yeah. music. And, and uh, that was like, oh, kind of taking my own, and rather than just emulating things I had heard before. Okay. Um, and then through all that, the, the, you know, people think when they meet me and talk to me like, oh, music, music, music. And yeah, I'm obviously into music, but the things in the art world that have been most formational to me have been mostly film and novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier, like the first big ones that I got into was Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar and uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, mm-hmm. uh, which to me were just like, whoa, novels can be so weird <laughs> and they can be so dark and so profound at the same time. And to this day, like what I read, I mean, I read a tremendous amount of like Bible and theology for school and for work and I enjoy it and I do it for fun as well. But what I most do, like if I'm reaching for a book for the for the sake of reading is a novel. I'll, you know, I still just go to the library and look at the new release shelf and just pick a novel based on the cover really? yeah. <laughs> and then go home and read it. Um, I think it's like the most transportive like form that there is in the art. There's nothing quite like it huh. in the world. And then, you know, I, I just admit, uh, really into everyone's into movies. I think maybe I'm a, a bit more nerdy about it than the average Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, I host a podcast about movies and everything that, um, but I like, you know, like people, when 
people often say to me, I don't want to tell you, but when I think about movies, cause you're going to judge me. I was like, I probably like all the dumb stuff you like. Like I'm first in line for all the Marvel movies. Yeah. Like, and I like, you know, the obscure indie movie, you know, art house movie as well. Um, yeah. but you know, for me, all that to say for me, that kind of stuff I realized, um, I, it has been one of the primary ways that I like connect with, God and like, yeah. and, and that the Holy Spirit will often speak to me. I thought that maybe I was, it was wishful thinking on my part for a long time. Like, I just think that like God is using these things to communicate to me. And then I realized more and more, um, that in the same way, a certain type of person connects with the spirit, like through nature, yeah. they'll go on a walk and, you know, or, um, through long bouts of silence and solitude. And I'm, I'm into those, uh, as well. I'll be sitting in a movie and, and like, be like, Oh my gosh, man, this is true about who God is and who Jesus is and how the world works. Even counterintuitively. So like, even if I'm watching in my right mind, something like black mirror, I'll be like, man, there's, there's elements of truth in this, Mm. but the missing piece that I know to be true is, you know, this and this and this. Um, so I think that's uh, one of the reasons that I dabble in so many different, yeah genres and forms uh, of art is just because I like so many different ones. I don't know that I'm, and this is not false modesty, but I don't know that I'm excellent at any given thing, but I, I like to like yeah. exist in those worlds. You know what I mean? So why, why go to seminary and then become a pastor? I mean, you have all these other interests and as I hear you talk, I'm like, man, those all sound, I could very much resonate with that. Where, where does pastoral ministry fit in with, uh, with all that? Oh man, the, it's the weirdest thing. I may, maybe a, uh, you know, you have a story kind of similar to this. I don't know. The I was doing my thing in the band, and the band for me, um, the band that I was in for so many years, uh, Showbread, was always an overtly Jesus centric okay. thing. Like it wasn't like a bait and switch. It wasn't like, yeah. uh, you know, we and we existed with one foot in the Christian industry and one foot in the non Christian industry, and that frustrated people on both sides. Um, and I just saw such a, like a cohesiveness between, um, going around and what we would call sharing the gospel and like a punk rock mentality because it's so countercultural. It's so counterintuitive. All the ideas about like going against yourself, yeah. um, for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and you know, honestly, in a, uh, a place like in our, in Western culture in America, like Jesus values are so counter the norm. Yeah even counter the evangelical norm. But I was just like, it's just peas and carrots, Jesus and, and punk rock. So we made no bones about it. We talked about Jesus all the time, sang and wrote lyrics, songs about Jesus. Um, Wait, real, real quick, that, real, real quick. So, so what punk rock music is doing to the broader music industry is you're saying it's very similar to what Christian values and the Christian worldview and Christianity should be doing to the broader culture as a whole. And so there's some I prophetic think so. kind yeah, of resonance. And I think it, That's, yeah, if you look at uh, church history and this idea that there was this like podunk grassroots movement that became something yeah. like profound that swept an empire and turned it upside down with a message that for all intents and purposes should not have resonated right. the way that it did, at least on paper, if you take Jesus-y values. And obviously there's something that you and I would say is like uh, obviously beautiful and obviously profound. It speaks to the human soul, yeah. but it comes at such a radical cost. It's mm-hmm. such a costly, beautifully costly thing. Um, and it is kind of a grab you by the shoulders, wake up type of message that what punk rock did um, in you know the late '70s in the in the UK and America, at least in the music industry, and then as a countercultural type of thing, was like a, hey, everything's not the way that we think it is. Yeah. 
and someone has to stand up and say like this is not right and this is right like this is true this is not true um and they did it in like a hyper provocative type of way and even you know like i read jesus and i tell people all the time that like um, when they're like, I just love everything Jesus has to say. And I'm like, really? Like, because <laughs> it seems like Jesus often goes out of his way to be deliberately offensive yeah. for the sake of like, com- yeah. like communicative resonance. Um, and that's the weirdness of some of the things. And even like, you know, one of my favorite stories is like people hear weird stuff Jesus says and they're like, this, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> Who can accept it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that there's like an obvious uh, carryover yeah. between at least a, at least a punk rock school of thought and like a Jesus worldview. Well, so uh, one of the uh, one of my fa- I'm not a, hu- a, a huge well I'm not a musician at all. I love music, <laughs> but I don't uh, know music, and so I don't even like I I know hardly any bands, and I probably like a lot of bands, kind of like you know as you mentioned, you know that you might like dumb movies too. I probably like bands that are prob- probably sure. terrible musicians. I just like I just like the guitar. I don't know. Or, um, but one of my one of the bands that I would say. I have almost unintentionally resonated with in my own kind of writing and speaking is is Rush. Did you were you a Rush fan ever? I mean, they're I, well, I was after the fact. Yeah, yeah, once I got into like prog and conceptual yeah. music, yeah. I just the early Rush at least. I didn't really like their after. Um, oh, what is it? Moving Pictures or the like the fifth or sixth album after that. I didn't. I didn't really. I just didn't like the sound of it. But I just. The thoughtfulness, the difference, the, you know, 2112 is a 20 minute song with five parts, you know, almost like a, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's like, I just like the idea of that. And they, the, the documentary on, on Netflix, I think it was where they said, like, we just set out to do what we appreciated. We never thought other people would do it. We didn't care. Like we were never trying asking the question, like, oh, wow, how many people is this going to resonate with? They were just like diving deep and exploring different themes and doing different things that they didn't know if anybody's going to like it or not. It turns out, you know, a lot of people did. But but even then, like in the time, it, it took a while for it to catch on. Even back then, it seems like they weren't, for being so off the chart talented, they still weren't, you know, as big as they could have yeah, been. Yeah, I think good good art is usually like that. And the, the, the philosophical... Um, imposition that we place on ourselves when we were doing showbread was like, we're not allowed to ask ourselves, but will people like it? Yeah. Will they understand it? Yeah. Um, because I think that it, it's, it's so crippling to, you know, creative sincerity right. to, to th- consider the audience as like arrogant as that sounds. But one of my favorite novelists has this great quote where he says like, uh, he was asked how often he thinks of the reader's reaction when he's writing. And he said, uh, I don't ever think of the reader and I don't care. The reader is me. <laughs> and everyone was kind of like, oh, wow, he's a jerk. Um, and he kind of has that perception. But I was like, man, there's actually a, yeah. a tremendous amount of wisdom in there. Because he's saying that, like, in order to be have some level of sincerity and credibility, he can't pander to expectations to to any degree. And I think that's what when good art is doing its best type of stuff now that's that's purely creative things uh, other yeah. kind of communicative forms like a sermon or a teaching are semi-creative and then you have to consider right. an audience reaction you have to actually consider it deeply 
Um, but when you're being purely creative, when Rush is writing their conceptual 20-minute yeah. future <laughs> space opera, <laughs> then I'm glad they just did whatever the heck they wanted. Yeah. You know, I don't want if I if I would have given them suggestions, they would have been bad ones. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So, so going back, I don't think you, you answered it. I took you off tra- track, but uh, why pastor? Why, why with all these other oh, interests, yeah. you can I'm sure you can occupy your you know. 24 hours a day or whatever, <laughs> uh, yeah. doing these other things. Yeah. Why, why invest time and energy and money and study into, into training and becoming a pastor? Well, it was because we were having so many Jesus centric conversations that were becoming in, increasingly deep. Like, uh, especially the more that we got into a prophetic critique of American culture. Um, and, and, you know, we were on tour during, um, a lot of the big American, uh, <laughs> bloodthirst events like post 9-11 America we were traveling during all that uh you know when Saddam Hussein was Mm. announced to have been killed we were on we were traveling from town to town in the midwest that kind of thing um so we would have what I I hope was like a prophetic critique of American Christianity um in our music and in our lyricism and more and more some people were alienated or they were offended I mean I'm sure you know all about that but the a few of them would come to us and be like, man, part of this feels like it speaks to my soul, but I I need to understand it better. Like genuine, Mm -hmm. humble thirst for more information, not necessarily like, you know, convinced, but they wanted to like uh, consistently follow the way of Jesus. And I was like, man, I I should actually know more (laughs) than I know. So I just started to actually um, look for uh, and buy books by writers that were on that topic. And one of the first ones I came to that really resonated me with was Greg Boyd. Yeah. In particular, his uh, Myth of a Christian Nation Mm -hmm. um, and the the corresponding sermon series that lost him half his congregation (laughs) in Minneapolis or whatever. Yeah. and I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And much like the same way that Nine Inch Nails is like a gateway mm. to Pink Floyd and yeah. David Bowie, Greg Boyd became this gateway to more of the thinkers in the Anabaptist tradition, um, writers, you know, like Yoder and Walter Wink and yeah. these other people who, who were writing also a prophetic critique of um, Christendom, now they like to say, and yeah. especially American Christian culture. And I just realized that I actually really enjoyed theology, mm-hmm. like as a as a di- as a discipline. I thought it was fascinating. I loved the way that like uh, a mind like Boyd's worked in just parsing out ideas, mm-hmm. even like a philosophical, like you know this, this, and this, and logic and that kind of thing. And I liked it to the degree that um, I started to do uh, uh, what I guess some people might think of as an excessive amount of studying on my own, just for the heck of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always having these conversations. I'm sure they were frustrating or they sounded pretentious to someone else. I was like, Oh, you know, I was reading this thinker and that person. And it eventually landed me, you know, my wife and I moved to, uh, Portland. We were living in Georgia, moved to Portland and got involved with, uh, this church out here in Portland. And I befriended, I mentioned him earlier, this guy, John Mark Comer, um, because we had shared interests in theology and we liked a lot of the same thinkers and had uh, shared a lot of similar mm-hmm. uh, views that um, we felt we couldn't go around broadcasting. So we would secretly be like, yeah, I'm really into this. <laughs> and, you know, what do you think about this? And uh, and in that he was kind of like, you know, I really think that you should um, pursue like uh, a pastoral role or as a teacher at least and go to seminary and I can get you into I can help, you know, like get you into this. Um, seminary cohort type is an unconventional form to the way they, they do graduate school. And I was like, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that like, uh, I, I think that that was kind of like the next evolution of what I was doing with art and music, um, was to 
take all that like energy communicative energy that I had to uh, talk about what I think is like profound truth theological insight distilling concepts that are way up here you know um, from thoughtful theologians down into an accessible mm -hmm. understandable comprehensible level for the person who's never going to crack a you know a text an academic book and that's fine um, and I found that teaching was like a, or sermons were, were such a fantastic form to do exactly that mm. thing the same way that lyrics and um, you know, novels can communicate profound truth creatively. Yeah. Sermons can do the exact same thing. It's just an entirely different skill set and, yeah. you know, disciplinary form. Uh, and so I started to do that. I was working at the church, not in a pastoral capacity whatsoever. I was the, I was the videographer. This is at uh, John and, Mark's uh, church or Van City? At, at John Mark's church at Bridgetown yeah. in Portland. And he was kind of pushing me in that direction be like, no, you can do this. You should do this. And he would let me like teach on a Sunday here and there. And it was so weird. It was like, why is the video guy up there doing a sermon? <laughs> and eventually they kind of asked me to plant a church in Vancouver, which is just like 10 yeah. minutes from Portland, but a different state, different city, different culture. And so now um, I lead this small church out here in downtown Vancouver uh, and so it's been quite a, quite a wild ride now. Oh, so it's a plant from Bridgetown. It is. Okay. Yeah. We like to think of it as like a pseudo sister okay. church cause it's not a campus. It's not like an extension of Bridgetown in the formal sense, but we still share resources, collaborate, yeah. do the same types of teachings and all that. So I, I'm curious and I don't know how to say this. <laughs> uh, you're, <laughs> oh, you're, you're not your traditional uh, pastor. I mean, even your your look, your your uh, this, your choice of film, your favorite bands, Nine Inch. <laughs> yeah. Can you do, uh, yeah. does your passion, your the things you're interested in? Does that is that reflect the flavor of the church, or do you feel like you're you know kind of uh, budding up against a, a church culture within your church that that you don't necessarily resonate with or both and or yeah i think it's a little bit of both i mean i'm sure people that go to van city would probably say that in it's some way my personality is somewhat reflected in the personality of the church yeah. um but i do i feel like a a you know a, a i have a phobia of i don't want to become uh, predictable in the sense that like, Oh, the pastor's got tattoos. So it's this rock and rock and roll church with like <laughs> skulls on the side, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so in some ways, maybe people would be terribly surprised to find that it is, um, huh. at, at least more conventional that you'd expect. Okay. I mean, we play the normal worship songs. We have normal bands and, yeah. um, the form is, you know, what you might have expect from, yeah. uh, the, you know, the type of church that we are. Yeah. Uh, so it's not like in, in your face, yeah. you know, <laughs> loud music or something like that. Yeah. Um, and part of that's like, I'm, uh, apprehensive. I don't, I don't want to be this, like yeah. the rock and roll church, you know, <laughs> and, and in many ways, you know, people like to say, wow, that guy, he's a pastor and, I, and there's an accuracy to it. But, uh, I'm also terribly conventional in 2018. It's like he has tattoos. Hooray. Everyone yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> has tattoos. So I think the notoriety of it has waned a lot over time. Yeah. Uh, but that, yeah, it's still, it's like, uh, I, d I don't fit the mold and that that's not necessarily just in a outward presentation, but like you said, and some of my, yeah, the idea is, I mean, like are that. you, 
from the pulpit talking about annihilation and pacifism and things that the average churchgoers typically doesn't really. Although, I mean, in, I, well, in the Portland, broader Portland area, I know Vancouver's more conservative, though, right? I, I they're very yeah, different. Yeah, it is. Uh-huh. But so I know in Portland, it seems like every pastor there seems like they believe in nonviolence from my vantage. I mean, I know it's not true, but I mean, it's you guys over there can get away with some more non-conventional beliefs. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a it's both. It's weird because, you know, in a place like the Pacific Northwest, Portland and to a lesser extent, Vancouver, but Vancouver as well. There's certainly an openness to unconventional ideas that you would get you run out of town in the south right. or, or something like that. Um, but there still is so much inherent traditionalism and an and unperceived uh, traditionalism in Christian culture that. When I, you know, critique uh, the empire, if I talk about America and compare it to the Roman Empire or yeah. something like that, which, uh, you know, if we're just teach, we're a conventional church in the sense that we like exegetically teach through a book of yeah. the Bible. And so when you do that, we've been in Matthew for like more than a year now. When you do that, you inevitably run right. into all these topics like judgment and uh you know, uh, the empire, nonviolence, teaching you know, Sermon on the Mount, you just can't possibly get away of sexuality, all right, that kind right. of stuff. And it's inevitable that you ruffle feathers on both sides. Um, and to a point that I sometimes find it surprising, like, oh, really? People were offended by that? I would think that that's kind of, you know, less surprising than it was once upon a time, but they still do. Um, and we do, we talk, I mean, like I, I'm not on a mission to go there and I, you know, I, we have our, our model is like team leadership. So I'm not like the boss at the top of top of a pyramid. I'm, and you know, I know people don't like this language, but like submitted to yeah. a team of elders and all that stuff. Um, so if they're like, you're on your hobby horse, don't do that. I'm like, okay. You know, okay. I, I trust in them and they trust in me. I, th- I hope. Yeah. Um, but there are times when it's like, we have no choice but to go. There. I right. mean, a great example is we were in the sermon on the Mount. And we did like six extra teachings on nonviolence <laughs> because we realized that like, oh, people are going to have so many questions that we can't possibly answer in that little collection of verses yeah. just exegetically. So, you know, that was when John Mark and I bothered you. We did an interview yeah. with you. We did an interview with like Boyd and Bruxy uh, Cave yeah. and all the, all those guys. Uh, and it became like this great conversational moment for our church where we have a couple of guys who are like in the military and we have people who were like, Oh, Whoa, that's crazy. But they were like open to have the conversation. Um, So that's where I have to limit my tendency to provoke uh, because when you provoke and alienate, there's just not helpful. I would much rather, you know, in your book, uh, is a great example of this. It opens with this like, all right, everybody calm down for a second. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the traditional expectation of a pacifist. Yeah. Just give me a second. Yeah. That's how I read that like <laughs> prologue. It's like, all right, everyone, just calm yeah. down for a second. Sit down, hear me out. Um, and that's kind of the approach we take. But yeah, yeah. We, we inevitably, when you talk about the Bible, have to talk about that. That's all you can ask for is somebody willing to engage the conversation, not just begin with a bunch of anger and walls going up. It's like, hey, man, I'm, I'm not even saying that you need to be convinced by this, but at least let's reflect on some really challenging things in Scripture. You know, if you can get there, to me, that's that's a win. It's surprising how many people just don't won't even go there. They don't want to engage in. Open yeah, I know. It's such a know? huge bummer. And you probably have even way more experience with this than I do, but you realize sometimes that, uh, and maybe this is my pessimism talking, but sometimes people are just fundamentally uninterested in having a conversation whatsoever. And when they are, you're just like, oh, this is not going anywhere. 
I wish you well, my friend. And then yeah. other times there's like a little bit of that, but also a little bit of like, I don't know, tell me this. And you just try to yeah. work your way through yeah, that. Yeah, totally. That you know, crap. yeah, uh, Evan Wickham, our mutual friend, um, he was, he's, is going through Matthew and he had me come down and <laughs> do the love your enemies talk. <laughs> I, I think uh, he lost like 200 people between the next Sunday and that one. I, it was summertime. So oh it, it, I don't, I don't think it was mostly because of that, but, um, and I was pretty reserved. I thought I, I didn't, I wasn't even advocating nonviolence per se. I was advocating loving your enemy <laughs> and, and, and not, yeah, and not, yeah, not is... tying the bow to, to tie. Um, but we had a good conversation cause he, he's very much like you. And I think like, like my natural tendency is to like, um, yeah, to challenge people and, and, and almost like, go beyond where they're able to go in that moment. And somebody challenged him. I think it was his wife. Yeah. I think it was Sandy that challenged him saying, look, you've been reading all this stuff. You've been mar- you've been marinating on this for five years. You can't expect somebody to make a, you know, a 180 degree turn in one sermon when they haven't been, you know, thinking through this for so long. Yeah. And that's, that's so, it's such good pastoral advice of meeting people where they're at and not trying to get them, trying to take them so far in one moment where it didn't take you. It took you a long time, you know, I mean, um, to to get somewhere. So that's, that's what makes it good. That's what separates, I think the prophets from the prophetic pastors who are able to meet people where they're at. And and I, you know, you and I probably both fail at that more than we succeed, but, um, but it's a good, (laughs) yeah, no, it's a good reminder. Um, do you, I mean, I guess maybe some people at your church are going to listen to us. I don't know how, (laughs) <laughs> how honest you can be. I mean, do you love, do you love, like, enjoy, put up with pastoring and what, or what aspects of pastoral ministry do you in, in your kind of unique gift set and creativity? What, what do you love about the pastor? What do you, what could you do? What, if you could spend like 40 hours a week doing this aspect of pastoral ministry, what would it, what would it be? Yeah. You know, I, I honestly try to be, uh, terribly forthcoming with my, <laughs> limitations in my own psychological dilemmas, whether it's about pastor pastoring or just life in general, um, in my teaching and in like hanging out and talking with people at Van City. Um, so I don't think it would come to any surprise to them whatsoever to know that like where my heart and interest and intellectual passion is, is in the teaching side of yeah. things. Yeah. I, I, I love like the idea of spending a, a ton of time reading, you know, a stack of books for in a in a week that 10% of which I'll use content sure, from, yeah. but wrapping my head around an idea and then trying to distill the essence of that idea um, out of, you know, teaching from the scriptures into 45 minutes or something like that. And, and being able to have these kinds of conversations on the side as well. So we have like a, a very, a spectrum of leadership at Van City and team people, and they're based almost on missing pieces in personalities. <laughs> so if someone comes to me and they're like, I want to get coffee, I want to talk, you know, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll do that for sure. But more and more, they say, hey, I've got a couple of questions theologically, and I'd like to know more about what Van City thinks or what you think Uh about this. And I'm like, heck, yeah, let's let's have coffee and talk about that. Um, And then there's, you know, uh, other people on our staff that are more just like that. I would just sit down and have coffee with people all day if I could, just for the sake of hearing about them and their lives. And they'll tend to gravitate toward those people for for that reason. And that's not to say I don't like just hanging out with people and talking to them. I do. I I genuinely do. But when it comes to like being a pastor and a teacher, yeah. I think that my skill set, if I have one, is that 
I actually like <laughs> studying the Bible and talking to people about the Bible. I mean, but most um, artists, and, would you say, are also more introverted? Like, they're, they're not this real... It seems to be that's an accurate stereotype, at least to a certain extent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's true. You know, I... I I don't always like the 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 terms, at least colloquially, because when people say introvert, extrovert, they use it as an excuse yeah. to be oh, a butthead. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm an introvert, so don't even talk to me. I don't like people. And it's like, oh, it's not true. I, I love being around people. I love talking to yeah. people. I love people, at least when I'm like operating out of my redeemed self. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I also like being by myself yeah. and having time to think. I think that's a more accurate version of what introvert. Like I get energy and replenishment yeah. from like being by that's myself. How I've, as, that's how I've well. come to understand because I think both my wife and I, who we love being around people, we're around people all the time. We can you know, um, but I think we're both actually introverts. When somebody explained it that way, saying we're what gives you energy and do you need alone time because extroverts don't need to be alone they, they're they alone and they start right. shriveling up and, and for me i could spend all week this is my basement right here i got a bunch of books i could literally spend all week here by myself and i'd be totally fine but when i go travel i speak i'm talking to people morning and night and i enjoy that too now i go to my hotel room exhausted like i feel like i played you know a double yep. header football game or something you know but um but i, I enjoy that too i love i love i love uh interesting conversations it is the superficial and it just stays superficial and every time you try to pull it out of that just the other person pulls it back up into the realm of superficiality that's when i'm just like almost not angry but just like i don't i just want this is just so, oh, so yeah. uninteresting uninteresting yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah yeah that makes sense um you're working on a book now your first nonfiction theology type book uh tell yeah tell us about that what do you what are you thinking through in that book i know it's not done yet but yeah, yeah. Well, the long here's the long cool title. You want the long? Cool I do. Title I like long cool titles. The long cool title is uh, "With All Its Teeth: um, Sex, Violence, Profanity, and the Death of Christian Art." <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> and uh, it really is just a. I hope like a, an a, an amalgamation of all that stuff that we've yeah. been talking about this whole time. So I, I, what I realized when I would have conversations with people along those lines is that they would have so many questions. There was such an appetite mm -hmm. for more information in that realm, whether it was like parents trying to exercise discernment with their kids yeah. in the arts, uh, just disciples of Jesus who were like, oh, is there something that's bad for your soul? Is it anything goes? Right. Um, should we go back to fundamentalism and nothing that's offensive? And I had what I, what they thought was like a more nuanced view. And they'd be like, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I, I actually haven't worked it out. I'm just, this is off the top of my head. Um, so I went, like people would say, do you have a book you can recommend? And I went looking for one, at least that would provide the kind of things that I'm talking about. And I could not mm. find it. I found like a, a great wealth of books about art theory yeah. or art history in the Christian tradition or about like why art's valuable for the church. Mm -hmm. Um, but nothing that was really speaking to how to navigate um, art that isn't traditionally redemptive, right. obviously, you know, like uplifting art, um, art that is um, even I would, you know, even art that could be offensive or blasphemous or things like that. Is there any value in those things or is it right. all bad? And the most I could find is like a throwaway paragraph in a mm. book or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I was like, it should exist. <laughs> There's a so I, my buddy Mark Buvin. Do you know Mark Buvin? He's uh oh I know I don't know. He's him. written he's co-written with Francis Chan quite a bit, and he I, so like multiply. Uh, you'll see Mark Buvin's name on there, and 
he's Francis's kind of editor, and he's he wrote one solo because he's huge into. Um, he's not a musician, but he's huge into studying like uh, just music as a whole. Like he knows every single band. He loves all the bands that nobody's ever heard of. Um, and he wrote a book called Resonate, and it's about. But it's only with music though. It's not with art in general. Right. But he yeah. deals with. Um, I think a very similar perspective. I think he's speaking to maybe more of a more of a conservative audience. Um, so it's uh, his prof- the the teeth the edge of the book is I think blunted a little bit because he really wanted to reach an audience that may, maybe categorically kind of like, no, there's secular, sacred, sure. you know? Um, but yeah, that, that one's really good. And there's, a another one called meaning at the movies and it deals with film. It's by a guy who teaches at like John MacArthur's college, but this guy's a really forward thinker. He's really interesting. I, I'm forgetting his name now. Um, shoot. It's yeah. I think meaning at the movies and it's like, he's a big fan of like horror movies. Like he has his class, watch like the exorcist and stuff because he's he's like this is one of the best films of all time apparently i'm not um but yeah he uh it's true yeah i, I think but but i don't i don't know know of a book that takes the whole the whole thing together though and and i think your style if i can predict would be very needed and very unique and and how you even present it you i have the book you said it guys so i still need to crack it open and check it out yeah. <laughs> yeah i hope so the i mean i have i actually uh Wait, did, uh, you sent me the outline, or did you actually send me the manuscript? I sent you the proposal. The proposal, yeah. that's, that's right. A, yeah. No. There's the outlines in there and all yeah. that, yeah. Which I thought, just in glance um, at that looked incredible. Yeah, I would love to see the manuscript. Yeah, yeah, I'll show it yeah. to you. The 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 thing that's like, oh, you know, I realize that when you have to write a proposal, you have to say all yeah. this, like self-promoting <laughs> garbage that's like i'm great you'll love this book buy it how many twitter uh, followers and, and yeah oh. yeah exactly it's so painful yeah. uh but i did when I, I say in the proposal like it's just like i just don't know if there's a book like this now there's attributes of the book that you can find represented yeah. in a spectrum of books and a lot of them are fantastic like uh and they were massively i you know i um spent a few weeks doing research for the book uh, and I read a, a huge stack of just about everything that I could get recommended to me and everything that I could find from a little research. And it was so helpful. Like I stole content, like, or ad- ideas, like I <laughs> ethically <Plagiarism>. stole content. <laughs> yeah. Not straight up plagiarism. That gets people into trouble. They say, um, but, uh, uh, I've, yeah, I just found that like, oh, there's, you can find specialty books about certain things and you can find broad strokes yeah, books yeah. about certain things in the arts, but I couldn't find one that was mostly there to give people like a nuanced view of not only how to navigate art that's like offensive or controversial, but how to learn to see if there is any, any value in that. Because I think that it's the thing that happens is it becomes a conversation about more or less censorship. Should you, or should you not? And less about like, well, what does God think about art? What does God think about creativity? Does God think that there's any value in art that offends and alienates people? If so, how do we learn to appreciate that? Should there be a place for it in the church specifically? Should there be no place for it? How do we like expand our palette? See, when you like track art history and church history concurrently, there was this like high high value for art that started to wane and dissipate, and I would argue is all almost all but lost mm. because now we think of art in uh at least in modern quote unquote evangelical culture is little more than entertainment we yeah. just use those terms interchangeably and that to me is like a a diss yeah. at at art because art can be entertainment entertainment can be art but like uh it seems to me that um 
even things that you know people write off as as nothing little more than popcorn entertainment like a marvel mm-hmm. movie or you know like a, a paper a grocery store paperback can have significant mm-hmm. profound um meaningful soul impact for a disciple of jesus yeah. and i would love to see like a you know a rediscovery not just in the like that's the the misconception is like oh if you're like a a four on the Enneagram and you were like artsy fartsy and into that stuff, then great. But for the rest of us, and I'm like, no, actually, I think that like a spiritual discipline in general, all disciples of Jesus are called to have a certain amount of appreciation and value for art and creativity. I mean, like why did God, like God is the original artist, the original creative, and he has so much non-utilitarian purpose in creation itself. Like in, I think that he intends for us to value that, not just be like, eh, whatever. You know what I mean? Oh, that's, yeah, uh, that's so good. So that's my agenda. That's my manifesto. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, gosh, there was another question I was about to ask you. I totally blanked on it. Um, ah, shoot. It's because of all that good. No, yeah, you things. said so many things. There I was like, oh, I want to follow up that. I didn't want to break you off. But uh, anyway, um, well, shoot. Uh, what I want to do is, well, before I forget, where can people find your stuff? Uh, you know, web- website, blog, Twitter, whatever. Like, where, where, if people want to find out more about your work, your your novels, your music, and everything else you do, your blogs, your your forthcoming book, where do, where do they go? Uh, I do have a website. It's joshdies.com. Yeah, explain Josh Dies. Is that your stage name or for your band? Or it is. Yeah, you know, when I first got into uh, music proper the things that most motivated me were like a lot of the performance art guys. So, you know, David Bowie is obviously a stage name. Marilyn Manson's a stage yeah. name. Um, all these kind of guys that came up with fake pseudonyms and I was like, cool, I'm going to do that okay. too. So I did. And then the first record came out and then it was too late, you know, but so I, <laughs> I continued in that pseudonym, okay. uh, at least as a musician until Showbread was over. Is there any with, significance it, with, it with the band. Is that like the verb dies? Or? Yeah, I just thought it like, you know, a lot of people looked for significance in it being like, oh, you mean like die to yourself? I was like, not really. I just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> <laughs> that was my assumption. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, kind of like there's a band, uh, um, Kill Nate Allen. I think it's Kill Nate. Yeah, you know, yeah, I know you that do? guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, yeah. what's up with Kill? That sounds so great. He's like, I'm trying to kill my kind of fleshly self or whatever. I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, it's, it sounds cool. It's catchy. People remember. So not it, that you know. okay. And you have a band. You have an album that just came out, right? I do. Yeah. The the a bunch of the guys left over from Showbread. We made a record together. And when it, when you're not doing like a career band, the sta- it becomes so much fun again to just be like, I don't care, whatever. Yeah. So um, we have this uh, moniker that we operate under called the Bell Jar, named after the Sylvia Plath novel. Okay. Uh, and we made an album called I Infest, Therefore I Am. I Infest? <laughs> and it's this, yeah, it's a super bonkers, like off the wall kind of yeah. synthy noise rock kind of thing. Um, and I think we'll just keep messing with that for fun. Like write songs, put them out, write okay. songs without any ambition to like become, we're going to become a huge band, yeah. you know. Can you, can you send us over a couple songs and we'll play them on the podcast? Yeah, by all means. All right, so, so can you think of one right now? I mean, we're recording before the fact, but I mean... Can you think of a song you will send and we'll, we'll close out this podcast with? And can you explain maybe some meaning behind the song? Yeah. Um, th- this is a funny story for you. There's a, a song on the album called Toxic Shock Syndrome. Okay. And uh, it came out of a conversation that I had working at a megachurch with another, like a, a coworker. 
and they would refer to the uh, the 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 entirety of the you know the conglomerate, the big mega church machine yeah. that it was. And I don't mean that. I know that sounds mean, but I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. It just really was a really big operation. Yeah. And uh, they were like this. They were super burnout and super. Uh, upset about everything and he 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 constantly called it uh this this toxic organization (laughs) and so i wrote this kind of like satire narrative of a character who's like critiquing the workplace and finding all this fault in it just as really like a comical exercise and um i think satire is one of my favorite forms of just like using a comedic voice to critique something uh it's a lot like uh the prophets you know yeah. that they were hyperbole and all kinds of like extreme language um so then, then you get a song like toxic shock syndrome and it's it's like not a secret i had a conversation with him when i wrote it it wasn't like an offensive okay. thing and he thought it was fun so it's a satire that deals with your reflections on the the internal machine of a mega church all yeah, in love yeah. all in no love. i don't i doubt anyone would pick that up just reading and listening to the lyrics but there's the inside baseball so so, so with with uh and i use the phrase screamo i think before but with <laughs> music that the average person can't understand the lyrics <laughs> is that fair sure <laughs> how, yeah. how do, yeah. are you are they expected to kind of google or, or go read somewhere the lyrics so that when they're hearing they can hear the message or what i've always wondered that because I, I can appreciate i appreciate almost all types of genres, including music where I'm like, man, I can't understand a word the guy's saying, but I can appreciate that there's something going on here. Is, is that kind of the expectation that you, you can, you got to go figure out? I think so. You know, it really depends on when, when the vocals are like screamed or yelled to any extent, there's a certain amount, amount of compromised <laughs> intelligibility. Uh, but you know, I've honestly found this sounds like a silly thing to say, or like I'm an apologist for the screaming style, and I'm really not. I could care less, but the or I, I could not care less yeah. rather. Um, the the there's certain vocalists that I can understand just fine because they enunciate <laughs> when oh, yeah. they yell, and there's others that I can't, or it's too fast, or it's too wild. You know, I've never been a, a fan of like death metal, for example. Um, and every now and then someone will say, but you should try this record. And I'll be like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And it's just like, yeah. I, they could be saying nothing as far yeah. as I can tell. And I sound like my grandma or something like that. <laughs> and I know they are. Um, but usually the stuff that I gravitate to, even if it's like over the top or extreme, and, and, I, and I don't listen to a ton of it, but I do like some uh, edgy stuff. I can understand some, or at least I can yeah. get a sense that like, oh, this is being said. And it, then it's more like, you know, that what's fun about art. You're like, Ooh, I'd like to know more. And uh, then, yeah, I'll go to the, the liner notes or Google it. So or you're something saying like you that. should Maybe. be somewhat intelligible to the average listener and, and draw them in like art, like, like a good piece of a painting or something. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think that even on like a uh, maybe not all of it, but even on the the showbread records that are more over the top that have a lot of screaming, um, at least if you're somewhat accustomed to that genre at all, there's yeah. there's some comprehensive. <laughs> uh, there, you can comprehend what the what some of the words yeah. are, at least like a chorus or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Josh, for being on. We're gonna close out. Uh, say the song one more time. What's it called? Toxic. Toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome. My producer is a huge fan of yours. I'm sure. Well, you'll send it over and and he'll he'll load it up. So you've been listening to Josh uh, Josh Porter, aka Josh dies. Uh, renaissance man, <laughs> writer, novelist, musician, <laughs> theologian, and pastor. This is, this is, uh, you're going to be listening to one of his latest songs right now. Thanks so much, Josh, for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.